Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. I'm Rahul Tandon. Plenty coming up on the programme. We're going to talk about an economy with a rapidly increasing population. That's Nigeria and the challenges that it's facing. And one with a declining population. That's Japan. The problem with Japan is it's had a very low fertility rate for a very long time. So there's a real shortage of people in Japan in the labour force and a huge increase in the elderly. But let's start the programme by talking about that country with that dramatically rising population. Those are sounds from Africa's largest economy, Nigeria, where, as you can hear, thousands of workers in different parts of the country have been protesting against the rising cost of living. Here's our correspondent in Lagos, Mayoni Jones. It seems a few thousand people have shown up at this protest that's organized by the main umbrella organization for unions in Nigeria. They want better pay, they want an increase of the minimum wage, they want the government to stick by an agreement that they've done last year to increase the pay of civil servants, and they also want the government to tackle some of the economic hardships that the people have kind of talked about, the high cost of food, the high cost of fuel, because for the average Nigerian life has been very hard lately. Indeed, because those prices have risen by more than 30% in some cases. Cynthia Adieri is a nurse in Abuja who joined the strike. Things have been unbearable for the common man. The cost of living has tripled. I went to the market yesterday and I could barely buy nothing. wasn't able to buy vegetables and fruits to make meals for my family. It's that bad. I'm sure many of you remember President Bola Tinubu came to power last May. He came to power promising economic reforms. As part of that, one of his big decisions was cutting fuel subsidies. That has caused prices to rise and angered Nigerians who were used to cheap fuel. Speaking to the BBC, the country's finance minister, Wala Edun, admitted there were difficulties in the economy, but he says action is being taken. 
I won't call it a crisis, but I would definitely call it a cost of living spike, which is being addressed directly. We all know that over the last eight years, there was an increase in the money supply on the one hand, which was not matched by productivity, wasn't matched by production, and therefore it was inflationary. And the majority of the people did not benefit from this, but a few people did. And that's why in correcting that situation, there's a focus of making sure it is the people at the lower end in particular that are taken care of. There is actually food in the market. It's the purchasing power of individuals that is really at question at the moment. And that's why there's an attempt to put money into households, put money into the hands of individuals so they can purchase. And we are looking forward to a very good dry season harvest and wet season harvest thereafter at elevated prices. Farmers are encouraged to farm and that will deal with that situation over the long term. Nigeria's finance minister there, we wanted to pose a question. How did Nigeria's economy fall into its current state? To get some answers, I've been speaking to Adideo Ademuagan, who is a consultant at Songhai Advisory. I asked him how the Nigerian government is spending the money that it was previously spending on providing cheap petrol in the country. This was money that was being spent in the first place without, it, without the proper appropriation process. So we don't know how much money was saved because this wasn't going through a budgetary process. So we don't know if any money has been saved that we don't know at all. From the outset, there was no accountability in terms of how the money was being spent and things like that. And I think that's why, you know, all of this, some um, people, the IMF, etc., talked about the need to remove subsidies because of the corruption and all of the leakages that were associated with the program. The issue is the way that it was done in the end. You know, the, the president had not appointed the cabinet. There was no finance minister. He didn't have a property team in place, the people with the right credentials to sit down and figure out how to do it properly. Do some scenario planning. What's going to happen If you triple fuel prices overnight in a country where there's no reliable grid supply, every household has a generator and needs the petrol to watch TV. And every business from the shopkeeper who sells milk on the streets to the big business have to power their generators with petrol or diesel. What happens in that scenario if you triple fuel prices overnight? There was no planning, that sort of thinking ahead. Because if you're trying to do stuff like that, you've got to think ahead. Mm. And uh, at the time, there wasn't a cabinet in place or a property in place to do that thinking ahead. Okay, let's try and think ahead and look at how Nigeria can tackle the problems that it's facing. We've seen a collapse in the value of the Naira, the currency. That's led to imports going up in terms of prices, plus the removal of the fuel subsidy. It is a difficult economic situation. What should the government be doing to tackle it? We have to understand how this happened. The Nigerian state, as it currently is, rests on oil barrels. The government needs to sell oil in order to be able to function properly. Right now, the central bank can make all the rules it wants, but the central bank can do all of this reform. But if the Nigerian government can't sell oil, then the central bank simply doesn't have the capacity to stabilize the Naira. Because what does Nigeria sell to the world? How does Nigeria earn dollars FX? By selling oil. That's the way it's been for many, many years. On that point, Nigeria has a quota from OPEC as to how much oil it can sell. It doesn't even reach that quota. Why is Nigeria, a country that is rich in oil, not able to sell enough oil? A few years ago, just before the COVID-19, the government began trying to do a new law for the petroleum industry. Eventually, that law was enacted. 
But many people in the Niger Delta, which is where the oil is produced, were very, very unhappy. And it was around that time, 2019, 2020, that there was an uptick in the large-scale theft from oil pipeline. It was just the other day that the former president of Basanjo was saying that 80% of the, the crude that Nigeria produces is stolen. I mean, that is a remarkable number, isn't yeah, it? 80%. Yes, there. And you are painting a picture of many yes. difficulties. But yeah, yeah. what Nigeria needs is it needs investment, it needs foreign investment, doesn't it, to help yes. lift up the economy. When there are not yes. enough dollars in circulation, when corruption is a problem, how do you achieve that? What is the thing that needs to be addressed first? When people are making economic decisions, whether it's a family man like me or whether it's a senior executive of, of a big multinational to, who wants to or who is doing business in Nigeria, they want to have, they want to, have they want to see what's going to happen next we're making decisions based on what we think is going to happen next and just looking at the 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 quality of the decision making by the people who are making the decisions so i think it's important first of all investors and everyday people the nigerian people want to see that the people who are responsible for getting the job done actually have a clear plan on what they want to do at the moment it appears that that is not the case some time ago six seven months ago the president appointed a tax slash fiscal reform committee that committee has not submitted its report to say this is what we're going to do first of all one have the proper people in place two you've got to communicate express a clear coherent credible plan on how you intend to address the crisis you have a great knowledge of the nigerian economy is this the biggest crisis that the economy has faced. It certainly does feel like this. Um, I mean, I'm Nigerian and I was born here. Um, in the 90s, my mother lost her bank job and we went back to the village uh, because the country was being ruled by a military general, Sunny Abacha, who ran the economy into the ground. Yes, it feels worse today than then at, at that time because, um, because of the rate at which prices are rising and how much more people are struggling. Uh, things are a lot more expensive today and a lot harder. I still can't believe that in 2024, we still don't have reliable electricity supply. So that's just what's happening. It certainly feels like um, Nigeria is going through at least the worst crisis in my lifetime. Interesting thoughts there from Adideo Ademua Gun. Let us bring in Fiona Sincotta, senior market analyst at City Index, who's through who's with us throughout the course of the program. Fiona, it's an interesting situation here, isn't it? Because we think of oil rich countries like Nigeria is, and that they will be doing economically well. We think of the Gulf, but that isn't always the case. Having resources doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to improve the standards of living of everybody. No, that's a really good point. And I mean, you know, Nigeria is just a prime example of that. Um, you know, just because you've got the, those, those primary resources doesn't necessarily translate into a very high, strong income for the country. I mean, there are other examples, I think, um, for example, not with oil, but Argentina. It could be another example where it has, you know, a whole broad array of, of primary resources. And yet the same thing, it's suffering from very high inflation and a falling standard of living. Um, so, yeah, you know, th- there is definitely a lot of work that would need to be done here in order to improve that standard of living. Fiona, stay with us now. We heard from an economist. We've heard from the finance minister. We heard from a protester. Let's hear from a businesswoman now in the country. And we speak to a lot on this program. Alezi Agpura is the owner and creative director of Nigeria's contemporary women's wear brand, Bajoli Fashion. Alezi, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Just give us a I sense of the Give us a sense with your business at the moment, right. with those costs going up, how much are your costs going up? How, much, how often are you having to increase prices? 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm about, I'm just about to do a second price increase. Um, I've been working on the new prices yesterday, today, you know, I've just been dragging my feet at doing it because, you know, this is also me to, uh, automatically changing my business model. Um, I was just talking to, you know, someone earlier today and I said, look, um, there are, there are, there's fabric that I've had to buy for, I used to buy fabric maybe two, three years ago for 400 naira. Mm. Right now I buy the same fabric for 1,200 naira. That's three times how much it usually costs right and even in the past um uh uh, what's it called in the past like say month it's gone up from 800 naira to one two right so automatically that is going to increase my cost let's not forget that there's also fuel there's also inflation so cost of production is going up cost of every little thing i have to do is also going up so automatically my costs have to go up um there's no two ways about it and i'm just it's 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 weird, right, as a business, right, because, you know, just last week or two weeks ago, I had to increase prices. This was not the same price it was two weeks ago. Now I have to increase prices. Again. When do you think you'll have to increase have them to. next? That's the thing. It could be next week, <laughs> right, because prices go up every day, you know, and I'm trying, you know, I'm just even looking at the um, purchasing power of my customers, right, their, their spending behavior, right? I would usually maybe have customers come, buy two three items at the same time i see customers now coming maybe buying one you know Mm. what i mean so i'm just trying to look for that cash cow something that's sweet a good price point that i keep on pushing that people can keep on buying you right so as yeah a business it's crazy it is it sounds Mm. crazy because you're having to look every day at what's happening you must worry that you'll reach the point where those customers who are buying one product will not be able to buy any products I mean, it's a real fear, right? Because at some point, everyone wants to save their coins for what's important, uh, which is food, you know, which is just everyday living, which is uh, fuel, you know, how I'm, I'm going to run my generator. Now I'm even hearing that, you know, subsidy on power is going to be taking out as well. And I'm like, oh, wait, but I thought you guys, I thought the government had taken out subsidy last year. Like, is there still more subsidy? So that means automatically how much we pay for light bills is also going to go up. You know what I mean? So these things, these things lead to just off of my business. I have an overhead cost I have to take care of. These things lead to an increase in my overhead cost, you know, regardless. So, yeah, not a very easy place to be at this time. Your country's finance minister, we heard from him on the program a few minutes ago, said, look, these are difficult times, but there needs to be economic changes made in the country, which will lead to short term pain. But long-term gain, what do you make of that? First of all, he said it wasn't a crisis. Once that came out of his mouth, I was like, sir, (laughs) sir, come on. You know, Um, it is a crisis. I think this is the worst it's been, um, just like the last person said, since I was born. You know what I mean? It's never been this crazy. It's never been to a point where every other day, not even every other week, pricing is going up. Pricing is changing on a daily basis, right? So I don't know that the government really has an idea of what they want to do. And this is also a domino effect of how we voted. Let's be real. Because once Tinubu came into power, automatically, the first thing that was done was subsidy removal, Mm. right? There was no cushion there was no cushion as to how it's going to you know fall back on the economy it was just okay we just need to remove subsidy 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 that was taken out okay so what's the plan how are you going to alleviate you know suffering on the people because automatically we all know that fuel is what fuels our economy oil is what fuels our economy so how do we because i used to fill a tank for eleven thousand naira. now i fill a tank for thirty-six thousand naira. You know, so does the guy that carries food from the north to the southeast and southwest you know what i mean his, his cost has tripled, 
you know, and then you're not really increasing um, um, mm. a minimum wage. You know, nobody's earning more. Everything's still the same, but things are more expensive. I'm still earning 30K, but I'm expected on this 30K to start to shop food that's three times the price. It's ridiculous, right? So finance minister, I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about. I'm also, you know, from a very, very real place, I'm not sure what the, the, the government knows what they're doing. You know, I've seen like there's been a lot of, you know, special advisors that have been hired, really upper echelon, really elite, yeah. it, you know, it, the best brains. But then it's kind of like the best brains don't, maybe they don't know the pulse of the people or maybe they're too far away, you know, so I don't know. Alethi, you have very eloquently expressed your thoughts on the challenges you face. Thank you for joining us once again. Fiona, very quickly, we've seen the Nigerian Central Bank raise interest rates by 400 basis points to 22.75. Just briefly, raising those interest rates, how's that going to help the economy? Well, what it's meant to do is um, start to sort of mean that those who are borrowing money would need to do so at a higher rate, a much higher rate, um, which means there would be less cash floating around the economy, which should lower inflation. But obviously, what that also means is that those who are hit will be those that, um, for example, have borrowed money. So we're not just talking about uh, businesses here, but also, you know, car owners, house owners. Um, and, and it means that they'll have less disposable income. Mm. Um, at a time when prices are extremely high, that does mean that there will probably be a lot more pain to come. Not something I think many Nigerians will want to hear. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. We were talking about Nigeria there, one of the countries with one of the highest birth rates in the world. Just to give you an idea, its current population, 213 million. By 2050, according to the UN, 377 million people. That got us thinking about population because Japan's population has declined by nearly a million people last year as the ageing of society gathers pace. The number of births also reached a record low and there were fewer marriages than at any time since the Second World War. So we wanted to look at population and the impact on the economy of Nigeria and Japan. I've been speaking to Dr. Paul Moreland of Oxford University, an expert on demography and the author of Tomorrow's People, a book about global population trends. Nigeria and a lot of Western Central Africa, really the last redoubt of stubbornly high population growth, stubbornly high fertility rates. And that's very much the product of countries which still have very underformed economies, poorly developed human capital, which means really that the population as a whole, and particularly women, are not getting access to contraceptives. And also, they're not having the education and the opportunities which tend to go with a desire to have smaller families. And how much of a factor can that be in slowing down economic growth? It is absolutely, as you're suggesting, a two-way street. So on the one hand, an undeveloped economy can lead to the kinds of problems of 
overly high fertility rates. But then on the other hand, when you've got a very fast burgeoning youth cohort, it's really hard to provide the education for them. Now, there's something called the demographic dividend, where you've got lots of people in their 20s and 30s, and they're not having loads and loads of kids. And that's a great time for an economy. But when you're just having cohort after cohort, generation after generation, significantly bigger than the last one, it's really hard to get a handle on getting everyone a decent standard of living and the decent sort of education, which then goes with a productive workforce. Yeah, the demographic dividend. I was in India for a long time. A lot of chat about that there. Let's move to Asia because we've had these figures out of Japan on Tuesday saying that the number of babies born has fallen again for the eighth successive year. That is posing a very different challenge to the Japanese economy, isn't it? Japan has a very low fertility rate, not the lowest in the world. That's Korea, which is actually significantly lower. But the problem with Japan is it's had a very low fertility rate for a very long time. Japan's had very low fertility for as long as Europe, that is back to the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. But it's been much lower than European fertility rates. So there's a real shortage of people in Japan in the labour force and a huge increase in the elderly, which means the government has more and more responsibilities on pensions and health care, fewer and fewer taxpayers. It's no coincidence that the Japanese government is by far the most indebted in the developed world. And the whole society, as the Japanese prime minister has said, is very difficult to keep going if you get more and more older people and fewer and fewer younger ones. It's interesting that you talked about the Japanese prime minister. He has said that the ageing population is the biggest challenge that the country's economy faces. How do they tackle that challenge? They're talking about improving childcare. They're talking about raising wages for young people. But how easy is it to boost a population? It's really difficult. Government policies, we tend to think, can fix all problems. And governments are endlessly trying things out. Some governments, anyway, realise that too low a birth rate is a problem and are trying to fix it. And they fix it with tax incentives, benefits incentives, giving women more rights in the workplace to combine childbearing and childcare with their careers and housing benefits. There are all sorts of things you can do economically and they're all good and they should all be done. But to think that that alone is going to fix the problem in that huge part of the world where fertility is not too high but too low is a delusion. Because, for example, we know that as societies get richer and richer, people say they can't afford children. It's an interesting paradox, though, isn't it? Because as people have more money, in a way, you are more able to have children. But so many people, both in Asia and in other parts of Europe and North America, are making a different decision with that money, aren't they? Well, it's both a historical and a geographical paradox. Historically, we were much poorer and we had much larger families. The richer we get, the more we say we can't afford to have children. And equally, if you look around the world, it is very poor people in very dire circumstances often who are continuing to have large families and very often continue to want large families. I think it is really about as we get richer, our priorities shift and try running a business or a school or a charity or a government or anything when within the space of 25 to 35 years, the next cohort coming is a third of the size of the last one and a third again. It's the sort of circumstances we really don't know how to cope with because until the present day, we've never had to cope with it. Fiona, interesting to hear from Paul Morland there because those circumstances he described at the end are posing economic challenges that we haven't seen before. 
Yes, completely, you know, and I, I think, you know, especially as far as the sort of the aging population is concerned, the working population is going to be smaller and they need to support um, those that will no longer be working. Um, and then, you know, that's something that we're seeing increasingly um, in, in, in sort of Western societies. Um, and often you're getting this sort of class in the middle where they're looking after their parents as well as, as looking after um, children. So, you know, it can be very um, pulling on both sides. Briefly on Bitcoin, it's reaching uh, new records. Well, new records for recent times, at least. That's right. We've seen a surge in Bitcoin. And um, basically, we've seen it rise up to 57,000, its highest level since around April 2022. Um, we've seen this rally come as, you know, ETF flows or flows into this newly approved ETF um, have really taken off. And also ahead of the Bitcoin halving event, which happens in April, which is when we see uh, supply reduced by miners. Yeah, ETFs allowing people to to trade Bitcoin in a way that they would do trade stocks on a stock exchange. Let's move to Cuba now, where the Festival de Habana, one of the largest cigar festivals, is taking place at the moment in Havana. Cigars, of course, are Cuba's most emblematic export. But with the economy struggling, how much of an impact has this had on the cigar industry? Usman Darwood is in Havana at the moment and is managing director of the online magazine Cigar Inspector. Cuba is, of course, massively important to the global supply of cigars, as is uh, Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, Honduras and Mexico. All of these countries individually have uh, a massive role to play within the cigar industry. And in terms of an industry, is it an industry that's growing? Absolutely. The pandemic provided a massive boost to the industry because, of course, everyone was at home. They weren't able to do anything. So, you know, they sat at home and enjoyed whatever they could. And cigars were one of the luxuries that a lot of people wanted to enjoy. So the industry has seen a massive boom in the last few years. It was it was already growing. And then the pandemic kind of had a significant impact on top of that. Although it's slowing down relative to the pandemic, if you look at it over a long term period, the industry is still growing. You're there in Havana at the moment, aren't you? And Cuba, I am, yes. Cuba has an economy that is struggling to some extent. So I suppose the growth of the cigar industry is something that is really helping that economy at these difficult times. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, the latest figures are that Havana or, or Habanos, I should say, has generated more income this year than last year. Last year, I think they generated 543 million. This year, they've generated $722 million. So it's a significant increase from uh, year on year. And that is obviously having a huge impact on the uh, economy over here. China is the biggest consumer of those Cuban cigars. Of course, a big problem for Cuba is it cannot sell to North America, the US in particular. That trade embargo came in in 1962. Is there any chance of that being lifted? And and how dramatically would that affect sales from Cuba? It's difficult to say. I mean, there's no word at the moment or no information suggesting that the embargo is going to be lifted in any uh, any reasonable measure of time. Currently, it's also difficult to say how, how that will impact the uh, uh, Cuban cigar industry. However, based on uh, some certain theses that were completed and certain uh, uh, white papers that were produced on this particular subject, the recommendation was that Cuba does not sell directly or online to the U.S. market, and instead they open up boutique stores in key locations in the U.S. This was uh, produced by uh, a friend of mine called Stephen Neerkin, and he recommended this to Abanos. You know, when we talk about a lot of products nowadays, we have to talk about the impact of climate change. We look at the impact of hurricanes. Has that had an impact on, on the Cuban industry? 
The hurricane had a massive impact on the uh, cigar industry. It was devastating, the uh, supply shortages and in fact, the whole industry effectively came to its knees and the compound effect of the hurricane and the uh, pandemic had, was devastating for the country. Uh, since then, however, the country has managed to recover uh, quite a lot. I mean, the people over here, they're quite resilient. They're, 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 it's a strong community and uh, they were able to rebuild. And now they're getting to a stage where they're able to start producing cigars at a more reasonable level. And I think that next year or over the next uh, few years, we'll be able to get back to the level of production that Cuba has been aiming towards uh, over the last five years. Usman, you are the editor of the online magazine Cigar Inspector, so a good person to answer this question. And I have smoked a few cigars in my time. Are Cuban cigars the best in the world? Cuban cigars are my favourite cigars, but to say that they're the best would be, uh, I, I would say, incorrect. Because if I say that Cuban cigars are the best, I'm speaking for everyone, and I don't think that's fair. You know, people have different preferences. Some people prefer certain cuisines and other people prefer different cuisines. It's, it's, it's entirely down to preference. But what's important and what's valuable to the industry is the fact that each country is producing fantastic quality cigars, incredible quality cigars, and each country has its own individual identity and profile. And, and that's what makes this industry such an incredible industry to be in. Usman Darwood there, who is the editor of the online magazine Cigar Inspector on his favourite cigars, which, of course, as he's in Havana, are Cuban. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Musik 